to Swana Region Radio. Swana Region Radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa that regularly broadcasts on Pacifica Station, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, and online at kpfk.org. My name is Rana Sharif, here with fellow collective member and co-host David Lloyd. Welcome, David. Thanks, Rana. After this airing, our show and um, are posted as podcasts, which can be found on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. Before we turn to today's show, though, let me remind our listeners that our station, KPFK in Los Angeles and serving all of Southern California, is continuing an urgent fund drive in order to survive what have been immensely challenging times for the station financially. This station, powered by the people, depends entirely on your donations to stay on air. Please consider donating during this fund drive and during this show, whatever you can, great or small. And if you can give more, you'll be helping others to access this invaluable public service at a time when many cannot contribute. Call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. During the show, or pledge at any time online at kpfk.org. Today, we're joined by Azad Essa. Azad is an award-winning journalist and author based between Johannesburg and New York City. He's currently a senior reporter for Middle East Eye, covering American foreign policy, Islamophobia, and race in the U.S. He's the author of The Muslims Are Coming and Zuma's Bastard, and has also written for Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and The Guardian. Welcome, Azad, to Swana Region Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much uh, for having me on the show. Wonderful. So we're going to be discussing your important book, Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. And we'll go ahead and make sure we um, link on our social media and our announcements for the show where folks can go ahead and get a copy. It comes out of Pluto Press just earlier this year. And before we begin discussing hostile homelands, you grew up in South Africa, and I wondered if you could tell us a little about who you are and how you came to journalism and the work you do. And in particular, if, if the experience of living in South Africa, which for so long was, if one can put it this way, a majoritarian or minoritarian, in fact, apartheid state, has influenced your thinking both about Indian majoritarianism and Israeli settler colonialism. Absolutely. So I was born in South Africa towards the end of apartheid. My paternal grandparents were from the Asian subcontinent, which is now known as India. Um, they made their journey to South Africa, to the port city of Durban in the early 1920s. And so I grew up in the early mid 80s as the, the unrest in the townships peaked and uh, the calls for the release of Mandela also, you know, reached a kind of climax in a way. Um, it was also during this time when the country was heaving under the, the boycott and sanction campaigns from the rest of the world. And so from an early age, you could say I was introduced to this, to this concept of international solidarity. And I was, uh, I was greatly enamored by, by the feeling that we were not alone. You know, this idea that, uh, that there was this global community that cared and acted on our behalf. And a large part of that story growing up as someone whose uh, family history was linked to India, also played a big role in that because India was a big proponent of the anti-apartheid movement, um, having been the first to impose a boycott on Pretoria. And so I also learned about the countries in the West, you know, um, who took such a long time to come on board. And so there was a special 
sort of like a feeling towards India in that way, especially being from from the subcontinent. And we also understood the countries that were not uh, initially on board or never actually came on board. You know, the U.S. took a very long time. Israel was never really fully on board as well in the anti-apartheid movement. And so one of the things that, that's etched in my memory um, is like when Mandela was released. And when you think about that moment, India became the first country uh, to end the sports boycott of South Africa. So there's this link between the idea of like normalizing with a country when some type of political change takes place or concession takes place. And that means that, you know, this idea of change only happens when when something changes with the with the oppressor, essentially. And how does that change take place? One part of it is pressure from the outside. So I grew up with that idea. And so when I was uh, in, um, say, middle school, the schools changed. We could suddenly now interact with white students and black students, you know. So, you know, I grew up in that period, you know, where we were we were late on uh, apartheid in a way and early to the new country. You know, yeah, we were yeah. in between. Mm. So what happened is that uh, after that, I was in- introduced as a graduate student. Unfortunately, I was introduced to the story of Kashmir. And that complicated things a little bit for me. And it made me see India a little differently. And so uh, you could say that the, st- the story of this book has its origins there. But, you know, it wasn't obvious at first. I traveled to Kashmir. I then, I then traveled to Palestine. And I saw these connections grow between the two states, as well as with regards to their projects in Kashmir. So that's ultimately, you know, how I got here. Uh, and, and part of it is is to do with the idea that when I started reading and understanding Kashmir and visiting Kashmir, the idea that India was anti an anti-apartheid advocate, also said to be very pro-Palestine, but had this occupation <laughs> on its doorstep as well. And so how does a country like that calls itself anti-colonial also have this this thing that's you know part of its uh, uh part of its makeup as well? And so so I wanted to understand that relationship. And of course, when I mean, this is part of the story of this conversation, I suppose, when Modi came on board, then, you know, the mask came off. And so we could ex- explore these things a bit further. Your book explores the relationship between Zionism and Hindutva, looking at foreign policies between Israel and India. So perhaps you can begin by sharing with our listeners the historical context, because it's one that is complex and at times it doesn't follow some sort of teleological progression. Um, so what is that historical context that has given rise to the current dynamics uh, between Israel and India? Okay, so the story of uh, India-Israel ties or the relationship, you know, formally begins in 1950. This is when India uh, recognizes Israel. Of course, there's, you know, as you say, there's a, there's a longer history uh, and an engagement between the, the, the Zionist movement and the Hindu nationalist movement, as well as um, Indian independence movement, which is, you know, uh, headed by the Indian National Congress. But essentially, you know, in, in summary, you know, India is is publicly hostile to Israel for decades. You know, it opposes the partition plan in the late 40s. It uh, recognizes Zionism as racism in, in the 70s. Um, and it becomes the first country to uh, recognize the PLO as the as the legitimate uh, representatives of the Palestinian people. And it was seen um, largely as pro-Palestine. But it also, you know, it had a lot of, um, or it had a deep admiration for the for the Israel's military and um, Israel's military industrial complex, you know, spoke to India's anxieties, you know, as a state. 
And so for decades, you know, um, uh, so oh, well, as the decades went on, India shed its like mask of secularism and, um, and the pro-Palestine politics as well, um, also kind of like, uh, diminished because what, what came out to the fore was this Hindu nationalist project, as well as this neoliberalism that became, a, became really very much part of the, uh, of the identity of this, of this new Indian state and, um, as well as, um, militarism. And so the neoliberal, neoliberalism and the militarism, um, was kind of the, the thing, the draw card, you know, that brought India and Israel together, essentially. Um, and so a lot of this started as well uh, in the 80s. And after uh, India normalized ties with Israel in 1992, you know, you could say the floodgates open. And so by the time Modi comes to power, um, you know, the scaffolding has been put into place. You have Hindu nationalism on the rise. You have uh, an Indian government that has been pushing for um, longer and stronger military ties with Israel. And so when Modi comes in, he is, he is open. And, and the, the only thing different about him is that he is willing to endorse Israel and embrace Israel fully. And so, so much so that now India is the, the biggest purchaser of uh, Israeli arms in the world. Well, that takes me then back as add to the question of Palestine in, in this relation, since we know that it's like the testing ground for those weapons that Israel is buying. Lina Al-Safin, who's the Palestinian journalist and writer who pens the Ford to hostile homelands, writes about your 2012 trip to Palestine and the indelible mark that trip left on you and suggested it might be the genesis of, of the book, Hostile Homelands, that we're talking about. I want to see if you could tell us a little bit about what your impressions of Palestine were and, and what that experience was like for you and, and how it influenced you in 2012. You know, as I said, when I, when I uh, learned about Kashmir, it made me rethink India. It also made me reconsider how I understood, you know, understood how, why India and how India um, elaborated on or uh, kind of exercised its its um, solidarity politics, so to speak. And so when I went to uh, Kashmir, I was struck by the militarization uh, more than anything else. But when I went to Palestine, it was so easy to see the similarities between um, Kashmir and Palestine on several fronts. So one is the militarization. The second is the, the kind of daily oppression that takes place. Um, the, the other thing that really struck me was, um, the controlling movement, which was something that I remembered, you know, briefly, um, or, you know, growing up in South Africa. You know, I, I, uh, I was struck by, you know, going to, go, going to Palestine, going to, uh, to the occupied West Bank and then meeting Lena, um, and she taking me around to all the different, uh, towns. And and it was obvious to see the different roads and the the kind of uh, places that you can't enter, you know, as a Palestinian. And so those things are, you know, visceral. You know, um, it's it's so hard to uh, escape that. And then being told, uh, why don't you go now to Tel Aviv and see Tel Aviv and see how different it is there? And, but I can't come with you. I'm not allowed to get to go there. And so me being uh, a foreigner, having more access to a place then the indigenous person was very difficult to stomach. And then going to Tel Aviv, I felt like, um, you know, uh, going to Yaffa, then to Tel Aviv and going to the, to the beach and watching, you know, Jewish Israelis uh, enjoying themselves in the, in the ocean. 
and thinking that he has a family that's you know been displaced as there's one 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 sibling in one country a father in another country um it's it's of course completely ludicrous and i actually to be honest with you i felt like um a, a european traveling to south africa during apartheid that's how i felt mm. uh and it was very hard to to remove that um that feeling um and so you could say that my understanding of the occupation uh, and the idea of of israel and and the story of palestine you know it um it changed dramatically after that trip and uh it made me reflect on again the question of solidarity and simultaneously india's relationship um with israel also changed during that time you know just after 2012 you know it it started moving dramatically and so uh it was something that i was determined to follow up in the future with you know um i wasn't sure what contribution i would try to make um but i i was you know I was sure that I I wanted to write something after that. You're listening to Swana Region Radio on Pacifica Station KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Swana Region Radio is one of the few programs on KPFK, let alone on the radio stations nationally, that covers the whole of this crucial region consistently and regularly. Every week we consider the impact of the region on US domestic and international politics and also regularly cover questions of freedom of speech as scholars, journalists and politicians working on the region are more and more under fire for speaking out. If we're to survive and continue to bring you such vital and insightful coverage of this region, we have to show that we have an extensive and supportive base of listeners. Your donations are a crucial way to indicate that support. So if you've enjoyed and benefited from our programming, please consider donating to KPFK's essential work. Any amount you can afford is a help to us. Call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Anytime KPFK is on air or pledge at any time online at kpfk.org. Please, in donating, mention that you value Swana Region Radio. It'll help us stay on the air. Now, back to our guest. You, you start off Hostel Home Runs with the discussion of Gandhi and his position, which seems to have shifted as well, much like a lot. That is a theme that I've noticed in your book, Hostel Home Runs. There's a lot of shifting that takes place. It doesn't seem like there is a, any clear indication of any singular position. Gandhi's own position shifted over time. Can you share a little bit about what were his views on Palestine and the growing desire perhaps to establish a Zionist state? The question about Gandhi is such an important one because there's a there's such a massive fascination with Gandhi and it's one of India's biggest exports you know the the idea of what Gandhi stands for can be used for anything India wants it to mean essentially you know they can justify anything using Gandhi right and also part of the the slow movement with regards to understanding India is because of the of the impressions and the perspectives and the perceptions about Gandhi and what Gandhi meant to India and to the world. And so Gandhi is a incredibly divisive character in that way with regards to how the symbolism of Gandhi stands in the way of understanding the subcontinent. Um and that goes across not just India, it goes into how the world sees Pakistan, how the world sees Afghanistan and how the world sees the rest of South Asia. But you know, going back to your question, <laughs> is that Gandhi was an important leader right in the Indian independence movement and along with Nehru India's uh, first prime minister you know their views like formed 
the backbone of India's foreign policy. So what they said about uh, Palestine, what they said about the Zionists, what they said about anything regarding the, the world, it, it wasn't just a case of them making comments. It was the backbone of what India's foreign policy would become, you know, or how it was always seen to be, no matter how their personal ideas changed or no matter how the Indian state actually behaved. And so both saw the Zionist project in the beginning in Palestine as something colonial, which is really important. Nehru in particular saw Zionists as cooperating or collaborating with the British Empire. And so this meant that the Indian independence movement naturally veered towards the side of the Arabs, as well as the Palestinians, in terms of fighting back against colonialism. Um, it was a natural sort of uh, alliance in that way. You know, several Zionists reached out to Gandhi, to Nehru, to have them, you know, more friendly towards Zionism. And generally, the, the consensus is that they failed. But the question is, what does it mean to be successful? And what does it mean to, to fail? Gandhi's position changed over time, as you say. You know, in 1946, he was quoted as telling a, an American journalist, you know, Jews have a prior claim to Palestine. You know, also Nehru um, also softened towards the Zionist state towards the end of the 40s, as well as the early 50s. And it appears that both were a lot more open to Israel than they put on, ultimately. And uh, of course, Gandhi was assassinated in, in 48. So we don't know you know, how he might have evolved after that. But, but, you know, when it comes to Nehru, you know, one of the things that people don't talk about is that, you know, India has been touted as a co-founder of the non-aligned movement, as a leader of the third world, uh, being anti-colonial. And Israel was not invited to the Bandung um, meeting in terms of the founding of the non-aligned movement. And India essentially gets, gets part of the credit for Israel not being there. But the truth of the matter is that Nehru was open to Israel being at the meeting, but it was only because of the Arab world and Indonesia that um, Israel was not invited. So, yes, the the ideas of both Gandhi and Nehru evolved over time, but it appears, as one Indian historian has also said, that it did not serve the purposes of the new Indian state to then push those ideas, those the original ideas towards Zionism and Palestine, because it didn't serve the Indian state anymore. And I mean by that is that if they became more Zionist later on, the Indian state understood that they needed to be closer to the Arab world because of energy, because of what was happening in Kashmir, and they didn't want the Arab world to move towards the Pakistan side. They also didn't want to recognize Israel too easily because it would meant it would mean recognizing the partition as well, you know, the subcontinent. Um, and so it, there was a certain currency in the third world to be seen as uh, pro-Palestine. And so it, at that point, it didn't make sense for them to change over. I hope that answers your question to some extent. Yes, I now have a follow-up actually to Rana's question, which which is the role that Islamophobia plays in the alliance between India and Pakistan. Because if initially the situation in Palestine is seen as colonial, my sense is that what we're seeing is a convergence around the exploitation of Islamophobia, maybe post 9-11, maybe even earlier, in justifying a sense of a common enemy, a common hostility towards the Islamic world, starting in Kashmir, perhaps, the relation to Pakistan, for India, and then, of course, the you know generation of, of Islamophobia out of Israel's claim that Islam equals terrorism. You know, Islamophobia is the is the glue that sticks Zionism and Hindutva together. You know, I write in the book um, 
this 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 point about uh, them sharing kinship with each other in Lutheran Zionism, sharing kinship. And, you know, this refers to the idea that, you know, both kind of pathologize, you know, uh, Muslims in an emphatic manner. They both see Muslims as backward, you know, as problematic. They also see uh, Muslims as a danger in a way when it comes to like, not just in terms of the, the terrorist uh, rubric or the terrorist lexicon, but it's also in, in terms of the question of conversion as well. There's this simultaneous um, idea in Zionism and, and Hindutva of being superior as well as being fearful of being overrun <laughs> and being, you know, being taken over. And so Islamophobia is absolutely part of this, the story. And um, interestingly, India does not join the global war on terror, you know, after 9-11, but it adopts the Islamophobia and the Islam- Islamophobic talking points right. from the global war on terror. And uh, that essentially expands. And that is also um, one of the major, one of the major bridges when it comes to the Hindu nationalists in the U.S., as well as the Hindu nationalists in India, as well as the Zionists in the U.S. When we're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about your APAC and the AJC and those kind of organizations in which there's, a, you know, there's a, a deep-seated Islamophobia. And so they start, they both start talking about um, trying to protect their homelands from this external threat, which they mean Muslims. They both talk about a civilizational threat, you know. Um, so, yes, Islamophobia is ex- extremely part of this, um, of the story. So, so in chapter two, which is called a military-industrial complex, um, for obvious reasons, um, you discuss this question of Indian-occupied Kashmir, and you've been indicating, you know, in, in all we've been saying today, how the occupation of Kashmir mirrors the occupation of Palestine, both in terms of the policy of settlement and surveillance and control of movement, and of course, through the militarization of the region. So I wondered how you think Kashmir factors into the rise of Hindutva and majoritarian rule. And whether this parallels the Palestinian context for you, or to put it another way, what role do Kashmir and Palestine each play in reinforcing Hindutva and, and Zionism, respectively? Okay, so I would say that, um, you know, there are several things to consider when we think about Kashmir and Palestine. Um, the occupations are not the same, and, and I don't believe we should be saying that, uh, but there are just many s- similarities. And so, for example, both states, India and Israel, um, were created with I- immense acts of ethnic cleansing in both Palestine and Kashmir. We know a little bit more about the Nakba, you know, that, that, that the stories of Nakba are coming out a lot more these days than ever before. But people don't know as much about the ethnic cleansing that took place in, in the area of J- Jammu um, in 1947, in which uh, historians say around 200,000 people were killed and around half a million were, were displaced. Um, secondly, both India and Israel, um, you know, hold Palestine and Kashmir as integral to their identities, you know, um, and this means both for the, uh, for the secular nationalists, as well as the far right, you know, um, Hindu nationalists or the, the, or the far right Zionists, you know, uh, Vladimir uh, Japutinsky, you know, the, um, uh, you could say the, the, the father the of yes. Yeah, revisionist Zionism. Right? Yeah. Um, he said, "quote something like there's no difference between our militarists and our vegetarians." You know, uh, meaning that um, both the left 
both left Zionists and the far right understood that the uh, that settler colonialism had to take place, that they were going to take over the land, they're going to replace the people. So um, the same can be said about India and Kashmir, you know, in that in terms of the relationship. And both states have conducted, you know, um, some form of occupation and settler colonialism since the formation of uh, of both states, right? Um, in terms of how they are used, you know, um, you know, Kashmir is considered, in a way, the the crown of India. So to cut it off would mean to cut off the head of India, and so it's also part of this larger territorial imagination of Akan Bharat or undivided India. You know, similarly, um, Eretz Israel, you know, Greater Israel is fundamental to the Zionist project. Um, so in terms of how they are used, both essentially see Kashmir and Palestine as linked to the reinvigoration of the political and cultural project projects. Um, this is to say that um, Palestine was lost and Zionism found it, you know, re, re, rediscovered it. And likewise, Kashmir was in the imagination as sort of like lost when it was like the center of learning or Sanskrit culture. And now Hindutva is going to, you know, bring it back and strengthen it and strengthen India through holding Kashmir. Um, so it's kind of like a, both see it as a kind of spiritual reserve in a way. Thank you so much, Azad, for sharing your important work. And I'm afraid that's all the time that we have on our show today and on behalf of our collective we would like to thank our guest today, Azad Nisa, senior reporter for Middle East Eye. You can go ahead and get a copy of his recently published book, Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel, from Pluto Press or your local bookstore. If you have enjoyed our show, please consider making a donation to KPFK at kpfk.org during this current fund drive. Don't forget to mention Swana Region Radio when you pledge. Your support and only your support keeps this program and the station on the air. We receive no corporate sponsorship, which is what allows us to air this kind of programming. But that means we depend on you to survive. Please call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Now or anytime KPFK is on air. Or else, please, if you can, pledge at any time online at kpfk.org. If we are to survive as a station and as a show and continue to bring you vital and insightful coverage of the region that we cover, we have to show that we have an extensive and supportive base of listeners. Your donations are a crucial way to indicate that support. So if you've enjoyed and benefited from our programming, please consider donating to KPFK's essential work and to this ongoing progressive coverage of vital global events, from climate change to U.S. wars in West Asia, by calling 818-985-5735 now. That's 818-985-KPFK. And if you can't do it right now, please pledge at any time online at kpfk.org. That's kpfk.org. And please, in donating, mention that you value Swana Region Radio. It will help us stay on air. And we'd like to remind our listeners that all our shows are available to download at kpfk.org. And if you miss all or part of our live broadcasts, you can listen to these shows and our previous shows on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public, or wherever you found this podcast. You can also follow our updates on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks, as always, to Ankina Antaram for post-production. My name's David Lloyd. And on behalf of my co-host Rana Sharif and the South Asia, West Asia and Northern Africa or SWANA Collective and all of our collective members, 
I'd like to wish our listeners a great day.